John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 901.js1002, certificate number 507, Paris Syndrome. This year, 82 million people will visit France for tourist reasons. That's, That's more than the population of France. I believe it is. That's more than any other country on earth. 82 million people. Yes. France has, uh, by a considerable margin, more tourist visits than any other country. What else would you think is in the top 10, John? This well, is, this the is United my, States. The United States is number two. That is correct. And how many people visit the United States? 75 million. So we're, know, we're only 7 million behind France. And, and well, I was going to say gaining, but maybe recent political trends are not in our favor. We're a huge country, though, relative to France. But France feels like it's like condensed Western culture, right? Right. Plus, many more people can drive there, you know? Oh, I see. Like France, sure. you get Spanish and Belgians and Germans driving in for the weekend. Right. I mean, we may have twice as many Disney theme parks, but it's a long flight. Yeah, true. And it's harder to get, I'm guessing, harder to get into the United States than it is to the European community. Sure. If you're in, if you're in the uh, Schengen zone, is that what they call it? Mm -hmm. Places where you can just drive in, there's essentially no borders. But yeah. also, I think if you're coming from Canada, if you're coming from Mexico, you can probably get a EU visa without all the American isolationism. What do you think? Uh, what else do you think is in the top 10 here? This is my dream of turning our podcast into a, a quiz show. I feel like, well, hmm, the United Kingdom. UK is uh, number six. It's actually Family Feud, I just realized. Uh -huh. Show me United <laughs> Kingdom. Ding! Show me. Good answer, good answer. In the butt. <laughs> uh, let's see. How about Germany? Germany is seven. Spain. Yes, Spain is number three. 75 million people, as many as the US, which I think is nuts. Well, it's all those... People going down to Andalusia, right? To the beach? Yeah, that's what's going on there. You've got every summer, you've got tens of millions of pasty, redheaded Welsh and uh, <laughs> Danish people, you know, who's, who always spend two weeks at their little place in Ibiza. It really is true. If you go to those islands, the signs in the airport are in German and Dutch. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, they're, they, <laughs> they, recognize, they recognize where their money's coming from and uh, 
And in the south of Portugal, you'll find whole enclaves where it's just British expatriates. It's like their last colony. Yeah. You know, they had, we had to give back Rhodesia. We're very sorry. <laughs> sorry for everything we did, but we're not leaving. We're not leaving. Menorca. <laughs> I do. I do feel like they're also the worst of, of their tribe, right? The people that decamp to Spain. It's Ooh. just like the worst Germans. It seems a little classist, you know? Because obviously, the well, mar- if you have money, you go somewhere else. But this is kind of the the middle class beach holiday. You know, in America, it would be all these people going to Florida and making right. making that a nightmare. It's almost summer. exactly the same people that go to Florida, or the same general sort of. Well, I'm retiring to. Yeah, exactly. You've got that. I'm going to retiring to Majorca. I got me pension. I'm going to sell me pub. Right. Uh, I don't know anything about Britain. Apparently, that's how they talk. <laughs> I'm going to sell me pub <laughs> because everyone has a pub. Sure, sure, and you're, they all <laughs> you're issued one at birth. They also just use use the pronoun me for <laughs> any possessive. I wonder if Ibiza is full of uh, weirdos the way our Florida is. You know, in addition to the the itinerants, are the locals weird? You know, are they throwing yes. throwing alligators? What's the equivalent of throwing an alligator through a Dairy Queen window? In Ibiza. I think in Ibiza, there are a lot of people that do like spear fishing, but they don't take a snorkel. There's a lot of holding your breath and diving deep <laughs> into the water. A lot of holding your, so it's oxygen deprivation, yeah. basically, uh, that's, um, that's um, led to all their problems. Among the locals, right? Because all the, all the party people are kind of contained in party areas, and then the rest of them are just... Oh, yeah, there's probably some gross spring break scene. Huh? Are you kidding me? Ibiza? Never, it's where house music started. I guess I just thought of, like, you know, these sad families going for two weeks in the summer. But, no. yeah, it's also it's also insufferable it's, college chavs. It's terrible. It's uh, that, That's where, like, those disco scenes where there's a bubble machine and it fills the entire room with bubbles and everyone's just sort of wearing electrical tape over their nipples. Like <laughs> Ibiza's ground zero for this epidemic. Yeah. That's where it started. All the, all the, the, and the late eighties, like the happy Mondays scene, that was the because beginning you, of the end. Right. Cause if you're in, you can't physiologically live in Manchester for 12 months at a time, you'd go insane. Except for the many, many people who do and are insane. Well, that's because of, <laughs> they've got, you know, they've got ecstasy, I guess. That's, that's what gets you through. If you can't afford the plane ticket, there's I'm not there's sure the, Molly. the moms and dads of Manchester are all sitting around all winter long taking ecstasy. <laughs> that's, that's what they do. Well, I'm going to head down to me pub and take me tab of ecstasy. <laughs> Don't wait up. We so should, after Spain, number four, I'm going to guess is, oh, is it, it's Italy. Italy's five. Oh, Italy's five. So four. Western, the, the other four are not Western Europe. Interestingly. Oh, Japan. Not Japan. Hmm, is it? This is going to be the rest of the podcast. Hawaii? No, that's America. <laughs> Used to be an independent country, yeah, but they, we, we saw to that. Well, and they'd like it to, to return. Uh, it's not Australia. It's too far away. No, and they go everywhere else. No matter where right. you go in the world every summer, it's just full of wintering Australians. You're like, who has a home running Perth right now? Mm, so it's not Western Europe. And we're talking about number four. Yeah, you still don't have number four. And uh, the... Uh, the Jennings family is going to have a chance to steal. Dee, 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 That's not dee. the family. Um, let's call it Israel. Oh, good idea, but no, not even number one in the Middle East. Wow, uh, I'm I'm at a loss. Uh, China's number four. China, and the other three are Mexico, Turkey, and uh, Thailand for the for the real weirdos. Oh, sure. We we, we wasted all our jokes on these weirdos going to Ibiza. Right. And we forget all these. Uh, a Western li- European. All and these loser sex tourists well, in Thailand. And is- Israelis too. 
Oh, is that true? Yeah. Israelis are famous for their walkabouts uh, in the same way that you'll meet Australians everywhere you go because it's part of their culture to go like basically on a rumspringer where they leave Australia. And I should explain rumspringer to our futurelings. Although I, I feel like we may need to explain travel to the futurelings. Like we happen to be living in this first time in human history where worldwide travel right. is widespread and instantly available even to the lower middle classes. Right. You get loaded onto these terrible planes, which are now like Central American buses full Death of plucking barges. chickens and, yeah. and whatnot. There's donkeys on the roof of the plane. <laughs> and uh, But you can literally go anywhere in a matter of hours. Trips that would have taken weeks uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Or and, have been impossible. Right. And probably are, again, impossible in your era. Yeah, right. You would never know you would never know what it was like to be in this kind of revolutionary moment where it doesn't feel like that to us, right? We've always had jet travel. Sure, we grew up with jet travel, but every other human and every other time just had to look at the same faded transparency or oil painting of the Eiffel Tower or right. the Luxembourg Gardens or whatever and think that's all I will ever see of this. Well, I think the majority of human beings, even in our own time, have never been more than 75 miles from the place they were born. I would I would make that assertion. That's true. This the, is a first world phenomenon, the idea that the middle class can travel. But my mom and dad, uh, they both remember their first jet flight and remember an era of the first probably dozen years where you got dressed up in your nicest clothes. You could be, you put your church going clothes on to get on a jet airplane. What percentage of Americans do you think have a passport today? Just to continue the game show theme. I think it's larger than we might think. I bet it's 25%. It's a little more than that. It's, it's just over a third. A third of the people have a passport. Still, two thirds of America couldn't leave the country if they wanted to. Like not even for like Canada and the West Indies anymore. I guess I'm surprised that a third of the people have passports because there are all those magazine articles you read about Americans not being able to find Mexico on a map. Well, they don't need to find it on a map. They just need to be able to find the Aeromexico gate. Okay, D6, honey, which is which is concourse D. <laughs> anyway, Futurelings Rumspring <laughs> is is a thing within the Amish culture. It's where, a it's insular religious community that doesn't deal much with the outside world, perhaps like your your own prairie dog burrows wherever you live now. Right. The Amish are exactly a culture of people from uh, Germany and Switzerland who had a very strict Calvinist Protestantism, and they came to America, but they did not want to mix with uh, the people they described as the English. Which are not English. It's just anybody who's not German-Dutch or whatever. Right. And they still they continue to speak a dialect— don't use zippers, which are of the devil. Ah, interesting. They try to live. If you're if you're driving through Ohio, you can tell the Amish farms because a they're pretty wealthy. They're nice looking farms, and b no wires running to the buildings. Right. Uh, but anyway, they have an interesting tradition, which is that they recognize that it's hard to keep young people in the community because of the no wires. Because of no wires, no games, no hot, no hot times. And so they kick the young people out. Kind of the Mormon church does this too. I don't know if that's true. Well, the the bad Mormons, the southern Mormons. Mormons they, do the opposite thing where they send their kids on an even more rigorous uh, travel experience. <laughs> like you you don't get to go listen to house music. <laughs> no, you have to East go Village. knock on doors and wear clip-on ties. You have to go knock on doors in uh, Belo Horizonte, Brazil. <laughs> 
Uh, but they kick the young people out and they go out and just go crazy. They do drugs, they have sex, they go wild. And, and help me understand this is the idea that they see how bad that is. Yes. yes. Like they, they get a lifetime of it in, in eight months. Yeah. Burn out. They burn out. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. I miss my butter churn. Right. And, and the rest of us, when we're young people and doing that stuff and feel lonely and isolated, all we, well, I mean, we turn to the church of Satan or whatever it is that young people do. Usually, um, I don't know. Get jobs. Increasingly strong drugs? Poetry? Join a fraternity or, I don't know, get an intern job? But the Amish don't have the social skills to handle this, right. so they and return home to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Exactly. A lot of them do go back and put on the, put on the hat. Put on in the other words. Is there a ceremonial thing? <laughs> return to the hat. Welcome home, son. <laughs> uh, shave your mustache. Shave your hipster beard down okay. to a, a Amish fringe. Uh, yeah. You're the, back. The Amish chin strap. But, um, so you, the only reason you're explaining Rumspring, let me remind you, is to yeah. explain that apparently Israelis do, do oh, something analogous. Yes. Uh, the Israelis also have a kind of like, go out and see the world, go be young people around the globe. Uh, you know, they have the money to do it, I guess. And they have like the cultural imperative to go out and dig it. But I'm, I don't believe they're going to Thailand for the same reason that some skeevy video store clerk is going to Thailand. Maybe not. Well, there are a lot of beaches in Thailand. Let's just call it that. Sure. Um, Paris alone will get 33 million visitors. 33 million visitors. Sure. And we're talking to people for whom Paris is probably an ivy covered wreckage. But that's a city that 33 million people are going to go to this year because of its near mythical status. It's the city of lights. It's kind of the Ur city of Western culture. Even if New York has replaced it as a financial or even artistic center. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, the, the population of Ireland is 5 million people. Yes. And they all go to Paris six and a half times <laughs> every year. So we understand why Paris in our time is this cultural capital, right? Because it, in an earlier time, Paris was also the, the cultural capital in the 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th century, centrally located in Europe, had a powerful dynasty. And today there's still a lot of popular culture sort of holding up the artifacts of that, even if Paris is not in a lot of ways the cultural or economic capital that it once was. So the Mona Lisa is probably a big part of how we mythologize it. Sure. Uh, cobblestone streets sidewalk cafes. It seems like it's now just bubbled down to advertising. Like really movies and TV shows don't get made about this mythical Paris anymore. There's, there's Emily that was the last gasp of, of, uh, well, there's, tweet, tweet. There, there was midnight in Paris, Woody Allen's recent film. <laughs> but you know, when you think about it, it within the court of the czars, wait, what the court of the czars of Russia, we have just jumped to the court of the czars, the court of the czars, uh, spoke French because they wanted to assert that they were a European country. And so they imitated the sort of French noble style as part of their cut your sleeves off uh, modernization. It's the equivalent in our time of, uh, you know, kids in Asia wearing Levi's or drinking mm -hmm. Coke, right? Peter the Great wants to feel like he's part of Western Europe. Right. So he wants to build this big Parisian looking capital with the same art and architecture and right. ma manners. St. Petersburg is just a little swampy attempt at Paris. It's just Paris on the Baltic. It's like yeah. that. It's like those Vegas 
the Vegas Paris shaped <laughs> casino. Oh, <laughs> with a with a one third size <laughs> right. uh, Eiffel it's Tower a scale model. I'm sure futurelings are familiar with that because Las Vegas will survive all apocalypse. Yeah, Blade Runner makes it look like uh, it's still there. A little sandy, mm-hmm. big sex statues, mm-hmm. but still oh, there. All the whiskey in Las Vegas just sitting out there, like still intact in the bars. Weird that no one ever goes there. I, there's, I'm sure there's some plot reason, radioactivity or something. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so of these 33 million people that still sort of make that pilgrimage to what was once the center of the world just to kind of drink in what they think is that timeless ambiance. Right. 20 people will get this odd malady known as Paris syndrome. So wait a minute, 20 out of 30 million. I'm not saying it's an epidemic, (laughs) Jeff. How is this even? Get tested today, folks. (laughs) If you're headed to Paris, get immunized. There is a one in 30 million chance that you will get, or I guess a one in 10 million chance. So it, you'll get this disorder. There's a non-zero chance. But, the, you know, the thing about the disorder is not how... The interesting thing about it is how specific it is. Because it seems to arise from this media image of Paris that we in our time all carry around with us in our heads. Yeah. Which so, has no relationship to the real Paris of today or possibly even yesterday. So we're, we're, we all have a mythological Paris. A romantic Hemingway-Gershwin Paris in our heads. And how... Does Paris syndrome affect people? So travelers will show up in Paris expecting the, you know, fairyland of, of Amélie. Right. This has happened to me. I showed up in Paris expecting the fairyland of Amélie. And what happened? Were there not comely uh, Audrey Hepburn types in turtlenecks zipping around on Vespas and uh, making themselves available to No, you? it was pretty good. I went to the Sacre Coeur. Nobody wrote me any notes or had any, like, hearts drawn in chalk, but... It all seemed sort of, yeah, pretty Parisian. I like Paris very much. Me too. But I guess if you have this built-up idea in your head, and then you show up in Paris, and you find that it's just a regular city, it kind of has its good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. It's got crime and litter and poverty and homelessness. There's an astonishing Um, amount of dog poo on the sidewalks, which is stunning. I guess, was this how all cities were before scoop laws and Western Europe just has yet to catch on? You know, it's a good question. I mean, there are, the cities in South America have a lot of dogs roaming around, and they are mostly just sort of 
polite feral dogs. Yeah, why are their wild dogs better trained than the the poodles of uh, of the seventeenth arrondissement? Yeah, you get you get. I think what it is is that the dogs of South America know enough to go poo in the street at least, or go find a get off the sidewalk. Yeah, but they the, don't have humans on the sidewalk. The little dogs of France are all on leashes, so they can't get off the sidewalk. I feel like it's gotten better in recent years. Maybe like so. They are catching up with. Uh, the Manhattan innovation of the seventies, which is don't leave animal feces in the street. Yeah. Monsters. Yeah. Pooper scoopers. So people discover that France is just a regular city, which mm-hmm. maybe doesn't accord with this sort of timeless gem in their heads. Paris. Right. Paris. Not, yeah. France it, is not a city. Futurelings may get confused. That's a fair point. Yeah. Also French people, they now have to deal with actual Frenchmen. Oh, they're and very women. rude. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a cliche, but they are very rude. Is that your experience that the, Customer service does not exist in every country the way it does in the United States. The thing about the French is that they're not that excited about, about showering. Well, no, I'm about, about I'm you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what if descendants of France are the only people who survive the apocalypse and they just spit out their camembert? It's the, Ke- the Quebecois. So they're not just mad at everyone. They're also mad at the French. <laughs> I, I, my experience is that the French do not feel any obligation like maybe the the people of the Afghani Kush do to welcome visitors into their home. I see. Hospitality is central to many cultures, but and not necessarily true of Parisians. Now that's not that's not true of all of France. Well, think about how burned out they must be. You yeah. have thirty three million people coming to your city every year. Yeah. You're essentially a Disneyland cast member. Yeah. You know? They're all standing there with with guidebooks going, Bonjour. Uh où est la <laughs> station du uh, uh <laughs> it's it's gotta just be a nightmare. Yeah. Like I would hate everyone too. Well, and and in my my experiences in Paris, trying to speak French, they roll their eyes and say, and either speak English to you with like contempt or refuse to speak to you. Those are the stories I heard as well. But you know, um, my wife actually speaks a little French, and when we were there, people did not, see, and she was very shy about speaking French to waiters for that reason. Yeah, but they seemed to actually appreciate the effort. You know, like uh, well, your wife is a comely young woman. Maybe she, you know, maybe there's a certain skill level above which. I was actually wearing a red beret with wraparound sunglasses and a galois <laughs> sticking out of my, and I was like, garçon, and they didn't have a lot of patience for it. Did you have a shopping bag with a baguette sticking out of the top? Actually out of the back, out of my backpack, because I was riding on a bike with a basket and a, and a, and a young boy. And a young boy. Well, huh? you know, we all have different styles of, of There's uh, always of, Thailand of, for of you, weird John. tourism. There's always Thailand for you. <laughs> So the end result of this kind of Kohotek level disappointment mm-hmm. in uh, something that didn't measure up, as well as, you know, people who are not following, you know, what they would think of as the kind of courtesy they see in their culture, right, leads to this incredible sense of alienation, culture shock. Uh, the symptoms range from psychiatric ones, you know, delusions, hallucinations, wow. paranoia, uh, in, in one case, it, the general case is a perception of being a victim of prejudice, aggression, and hostility from others, which is probably not an illusion. <laughs> like that waiter probably does hate you, sir. Uh, anxiety, but then it gets physiological dizziness. Uh, your heartbeat starts racing. So There's sweating, vomiting. Sometimes people get so far as uh, having uh, committing violence or having suicidal thoughts or even actions. Just because Paris fails to meet their expectations. Paris wasn't quite good enough, and they throw themselves off the pond of. So, so it must mean that Paris symbolizes not just sort of the locus of, 
uh, Western civilization, but but like it's been a fixture in their mind something for decades. Something personal to them that will mean something to their destiny when they go there and surround themselves with it. Right. I have to think. Right. It's uh, it's the Emerald City. You right. Know? And there are two types of, in the literature, there are two types of parasyndrome. Type one is maybe easier to explain. These are people who have a psychiatric, a history of certain kinds of psychiatric disorders and possibly strange reasons for wanting to go to Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, one case study is a 39-year-old woman who saw an ad on TV that said, France is waiting for you and decided that France was literally waiting for her. Okay. I guess... I don't understand this world. She where seems like a mentally ill person. She is a mentally ill person. I mean, I believe that France is waiting for me, but they're waiting for me to conquer them, <laughs> throw off their their parliamentary government, and install a, a Roderickian dictatorship. Charlemagne, duh. Yeah. But is that a common thing to for people with psychotic leanings to take advertisements literally? Like, like, do they go to Olive Garden and literally think everyone there is their family? I have never heard of Olive Garden syndrome. There, there are a lot of different mental illnesses that have elements of grandiosity. Right. Some kind of megalomania. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe this was, I mean, Charles Manson thought that, that um, Helter Skelter was telling him to kill people. Sure. I think there are which is, which The odds are against it. How many right. people heard Helter Skelter, you know? How many people bought the White Album? It's got to be tens of millions of people. What are the odds that Paul is really singing to you, yeah. Chuck? Right. Uh... And as a result, she decided she had some special destiny when she saw this ad. So she headed to Western Europe. And when she had her breakdown in Paris, she told the hospital staff that uh, she was here to be the queen of Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. Mm -hmm. Not clear why you would go to Paris to be the queen of Sweden, Finland, well, and Denmark. Well, Idi Amin was the last king of Scotland. <laughs> Maybe she missed her connection. <laughs> Type 2 is a little more confusing. These are people who are in France for months before the syndrome makes its onset. Huh. Uh, and they have no history of any kind of mental illness. One guy was just there to study and then he drops out of class and, you know, weeks later they find him in his hotel room, unable to go outside and he's suffering from anxiety, anorexia, insomnia. He hears, he's hearing voices threatening him and his family. How do they identify this as Paris syndrome in particular? That's an excellent question. Uh, there are a whole, in the psychiatric literature, there are a whole bunch of city specific syndromes. It all goes back to Florence, Italy uh, in the, in the 1980s, a Italian a uh, psychologist identified what she called Stendhal syndrome, uh -huh. which afflicts tourists confronted by the beautiful art and architecture of Florence for the first time. I had it when I read The Red and the Black for the <laughs> third time. I got Stendhal syndrome. I was about to explain to people in the future <laughs> that Stendhal is a French novelist that none of us actually read. I've read that book a lot. Wow. Is, yeah. it, is that, was that kind of a, it's a, I feel like his work is heavy. Uh, well, I mean, it certainly gives you a sense of, uh, what's going on in early 19th century France. Which I've always yearned to have. Yeah. It's, uh, it, there are a lot of court manners, uh, described and a lot of conspiracies, a lot of social conspiracies. It's, it's quite a bit about the many layers of the many subterranean layers of social maneuvering and grace. So... Is this, a, is this book assigned a lot? I never had any teacher or professor think that I was going to read Charterhouse of Parma or The Red and the Black. I, I had a minor in Russian literature. And, and, and like the SARS, <laughs> you thought you should read a lot of French novels. Well, so as a part of it, right, there was a lot of connection between France and Russia during that period, the 18th and 19th century. And so there are quite a few novels that have overlap or resonances and I guess fall into a literary category that 
feels Russian enough that they're thought of as honorary Russians. Yeah, Russian Russian novels, or you you understand. Russian writers better by reading this contextual. You're like the guy on Star Trek that thinks everything good comes from Russia. Like uh, he's always like, ah, yes, bourbon was invented by a little old lady from Leningrad or whatever. <laughs> Are you talking about uh, and, Yakov Smirnov, the, the, yes. the ensign? <laughs> in Soviet Starfleet, <laughs> transporter beams on you. Stendhal, in addition to his writing, was a sensitive young man who uh, liked to travel, and he had a religious experience in Italy. He reported, he wrote in his his travelogue, I was in a sort of ecstasy from the idea of being in Florence, close to the great men whose tombs I had seen. Absorbed in the contemplation of sublime beauty, I reached the point where one encounters celestial sensations. Uh, Everything spoke so vividly to my soul. Ah, if I could only forget. I had palpitations of the heart, what in Berlin they call nerves. I'm sort of bewildered by the idea that Berlin is the only city where they have nerves. But. Well, think about how anxious the Germans are compared to everyone else. Sure, back then that was the neurotic city. Like all yeah. the stuff we say today about New York humor, wink, wink. Right. So I guess is Stendhal's an anti-Semite for well, saying the Berliners are neurotic? I, th- I, feel, I feel like Vienna was the home ah, of like right. the, ch- the, the chilling out uh, psychiatry homies. You're more in touch with your feelings. Yeah, but in Berlin it's, it's dark, it's imperial. It's all undiagnosed yeah. mental illness as far as you can see. And Anyway, so, so Stendhal had the opposite of Paris syndrome. He was, you know, he had religious tra- religiously transported by seeing the art in the Uffizi or whatever. Right. Uh, and so that's Stendhal syndrome, the idea that it's kind of the opposite of Paris syndrome, that a city can um, give you this kind of religious ecstasy. Have you ever had an ecstatic response to art? I don't think I have. I've. Uh, Does music ever wash over you and give you chills and make you? Uh, music, absolutely. Film, yeah. absolutely. A painting or a sculpture in a gallery is much more for me a quiet contemplation. But think about how these people really had had seen etchings of Michelangelo's David or whatever their whole lives, and suddenly there it is in person, twelve feet tall. I mean, they they didn't have the kind of uh, global video experience we do. Well, have you have you been to the Prado? I have been to the Prado many times. So in the Prado, there's a painting by Velázquez called Las Meninas. Yeah, it's uh, the the daughters in the court of uh, some the court Spanish of, king. The court of Philip the Fourth. Some inbred Spanish king. Right, who was uh, confusingly a member of the Habsburg family of Austria, right? I don't because, want to get you started on Central European. All right, okay. <laughs> but anyway, it's this, it's this hilarious painting that portrays the kind of uh, behind the scenes courtly manners of this li- this little princess. I like it very much. And all of her attendants, including a, a little person and and Velasquez himself. Yeah, in the mirror, you can see the painter. Yeah, he's painting Las Meninas. It's very wry of you, Velasquez. It's very wry, and I had this really uh, sort of profound experience looking at this painting, where I was stopped dead in my tracks and stood there, kind of like not noticing the passage of time. And being just very emotionally moved by it in a way that I cannot explicate now. Like, what was happening? I, I stand in front of the Mona Lisa and you just you just pull a Clark Griswold and go like, on, two, three, okay, fine. Yeah, plus it's, you know, you're like, it's very small. I'm being elbowed by a bunch of Chinese people. Right. Uh, but this was this weird thing, this this painting that wasn't meant to be particularly moving. I would say my most kind of transporting experience with art was also in the Prado. Mm-hmm. If you go down into the sort of the lower depths of it, that's where they've got Goya's uh, dark period, whatever they call those, oh, his black paintings. But Maja 
also another another experience that I had at the Prado, standing in front of Naked Maja. The first painting, I believe, with uh, pubic hair, they sometimes say? Yeah, where, uh, I mean, she's really something. Well, uh, apart from your sort of uh, skeevy <laughs> appreciation. Listen, of- that is a that is a accepted triumph of Western art. That's an accepted way for <laughs> weird guys to look at naked women because it's been happening for 500 years. She's wonderful. But anyway, you were saying. Uh, Goya's dark period where he's got the um, the famous painting of Saturn devouring his children. Mm, Can you mm, picture this? Mm, where mm. like, you know, Saturn's, That's just, awful. Saturn's just taking a big bite and yeah. there's some bloody stump of Zeus or whoever. I'll say the dark period. And I feel like, isn't the story that the the Titans come back to life or the gods come back to life in his belly, but it looks like he's just chewed them all up. Yeah. Right. Like how are they getting reconstituted he's, once he's bitten off uh, he's pulling, Poseidon's head? Pulling raw flesh yeah, in a way that you just don't see humans do. They're sinew. But the painting down there that really uh, I responded to is just, I think out of pathos is called El Perro Semi Hundido. Hmm. Uh, the dogs of the, the semi submerged dog. I think in English it's the drowning dog. The drowning dog. And all it is is a wave very high in this rectangular canvas, sort of a tilted wave, like you're seeing the crest of a wave, and a dog's head looking up over it as if he, it might be his last gulp of air, as if he's going down. He's gone out too far and he's, he's going down for the last time. And it's a very simple canvas. It's really only like three colors, it's, it's almost more of a graphic design project than an oil painting. It's just sky and a tall wave and a dog going under. And I just looked at it horrified for, you know, it touched, it, you know, it really touched me in a very primal way more than the grossness of Saturn next door. Were there, have there ever been any pieces of art that you've seen in person as a young student or whatever, um, where you were so moved by the experience that you then wanted that piece of art you wanted a print of it or something where you took it home? I have bought a print. Uh, what's your story? Do you? Uh... Well, yeah. In fact, from the Vatican, I was not maybe not moved, but impressed with the um, the School of Athens, oh, right. which was this portrayal of Plato and Socrates and all of their all of his um, compatriots, right? Kind of coming down out of some temple. They're just walking down the steps thinking big thoughts. But in fact, it was painted uh, where the faces were all uh, Renaissance Italian painters. Yeah, Raphael's, it's like Sergeant Pepper's. Raphael's painting all his, yeah, his like heroes and peers. Leonardo is, Leonardo is playing Plato. I mean, it's like, it's, it's really kind of a, another one of these encoded paintings. And I liked it so much, not, not moved exactly, but like, oh, I dig that. And I actually got a, had a, got a print of it and had it framed, which is not cheap to do. I, uh, I have, I have had, I dig that much more than I have had anything approaching Stendhal yeah. syndrome. So, but so, I, but I think it's more for, I think it's easier to understand in their time when people did not have the access to eye popping beauty. And, uh, you know, I can go on Netflix and watch incredibly powerful cinematography Right. So many hours of the day that I don't even think about it anymore. And this is why the Mona Lisa is even a thing, because right. at the time there really wasn't anything to look at beyond yeah. paintings that you could find. This is all dreary Londoners going to Italy for the first time and realizing that the whole world is less dreary. You know, there's actually charming places. And that to this day, the British Museum is full of these giant casts of uh, Italian marbles that people knew they would never see in their lifetime because travel wasn't a thing. So you'd have to go to You'd have to go to Bloomsbury to see it. 
Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start so other than other than the florence syndrome and the paris syndrome are there any other syndromes we should know about some are more religious in nature, the, the most famous one is the Jerusalem syndrome, which has been known since the Middle Ages. You know, that was the big, before Paris was a thing, Right. that was the center of culture. Right. And it's then it was literally a religious fervor. Um, and so there's hundreds of years, there's centuries of visitors to Paris, Christian and Jew alike, interestingly not Muslim, who get there and uh, almost immediately ta- somehow tap into this well of religious psychosis and megalomania that they didn't know was within them. Um, there are hundreds of cases of people fashioning prophetic looking togas out of their hotel white hotel bed sheets <laughs> and wandering into the streets of Jerusalem where they just shout bible verses at people <laughs> oh or they'll go to some holy site they'll go to they'll go to some uh, basilica or whatever and just start declaiming uh, some message of peace and goodwill that they believe they have been predestined to deliver but this isn't a thing that happens to muslim people no interestingly even, even though jerusalem's a major it's city it's their holiest site apart from mecca but there are uh, no, there's no, which, which definitely shows that there's a cultural origin to this stuff. Um, there's an Irish school teacher who showed up at a Jerusalem hospital convinced that she was about to give birth to the baby Jesus. Okay. And the staff had to say, ma'am, you're not pregnant. Uh-huh. <laughs> Canadian tourist went to the Wailing Wall and told everyone he was Samson and tried to pull out the bricks from the wall. Uh, so this seems like something that you would have to be, you'd have to have some Bible verses uh, in your in your memory, like I couldn't go. I might put yeah, on a. You'd, I might... you'd have a clueless version. <laughs> hey, look, I'm Hercules uh, uh, crossing the Red Sea. Look at me. <laughs> look at me. Look at me. I mean, I definitely put on togas out of hotel bed sheets sometimes, but it's usually in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, my favorite is the Austrian man who uh, was very angry that his hotel would not cook the Last Supper for him. Hmm. So there seems to be kind of a, a messiah complex at the heart of a lot of these. So is there a cultural a- aspect to the Paris syndrome? There actually is. Uh, the Paris syndrome is the most unique of them all because of all these syndromes, and there's other religious ones. There's like India syndrome where uh-huh. some mixture of uh, hashish and... Uh, <laughs> People go set their friends on fire and throw them in the Ganges. <laughs> it's a, Yeah, they're there for a spiritual quest and then they sometimes they just disappear. Right, or they sit under a tree for a while and don't get enlightenment and get really bummed. It's, that one's not a disappointment. Yeah, that one's not a disappointment one. That one's more of a fervor one where they suddenly have a massive personality change right. and uh, wander into the Himalayas. But so Paris syndrome. But Paris syndrome, interestingly, is only been recorded among Japanese tourists. What? Of, oh. Of all the dozens of nationalities that go to Paris every year, 
the Japanese appear to have a very unusual relationship with the City of Light. What do you think Paris represents within Japanese culture? I guess now we're just speculating. Neither of us are Japanese. Right. I, and I've just heard this secondhand, but apparently we're, we are part of Western culture. So when we see Paris, we're like, oh yeah, that's some prettier, more Gothic, better architected version of, of our thing. Right. But for the Japanese, you have to remember it's, it's kind of, it's a very foreign tradition. Right. You know, it's a completely different aesthetic and uh, ethic in so many ways. And it's been pumped into their popular culture. All their perfume ads and fashion ads are still the magic and romance of Paris. Right. But for them, it's even more exotic, the accordion music and the uh -huh. pop, popping champagne corks. The berets, right. All the berets. <laughs> And so apparently it's alienating in a way that it is not to us. Right, because I'm not sure what the translation of, uh, of Hemingway is like to read in Japanese. They might have a much iffier, blurry idea of what Paris really is. Right. Like their expectations may be way more out to lunch than ours. Wow, that's pretty intense. The funny thing is, you know, what's more intense than Tokyo? You know, like if you're thinking of a city that might drive me to some kind of weird paranoia or fervor, it's just the... Uh, just the neurological overload of being in some place like Tokyo or Shanghai. But apparently people from Tokyo who are used to that go to Paris and just cannot hack it. They must be expecting that Paris is still in the, in the 18th century or the 19th century. I mean, I guess 19th century, right? That's the, or the best Paris is 1920. Yeah. Maybe between the wars. Yeah. Or, or right before World War I. I think the best of everything in Europe is 1910. Probably. Right. And they, they, they haven't studied any of this. It's just some subconscious thing they have via a bunch of uh, ads they've seen in the Tokyo subway, I guess. Right. And then they get there and, and there's Toyota ads on everything and they right. go, what the? And they have a, you know, they've got a much bigger, maybe language barrier right. than we do to cross. You know, people will speak English, to, you know, as English speakers, we're lucky we can go anywhere and just assume people will cater to us. I'm sure that will be true of futurelings too. They'll be clacking their mandibles, but it will be intelligible English. <laughs> the lingua franca of time. We have done it. Like, the the last true language. We've spread our language four dimensionally and w <laughs> wiped out future language as well. But yeah, the Japanese embassy has a psychiatrist on call with the uh, Opital Santa Anne every summer because they know they're going to get a bunch of cases of Japanese people fainting and throwing up and maybe not, having psychotic episodes. Maybe not the 20 cases that qualify as something you're going to put in the literature, but it's it's more widespread where it's going to affect enough people that the embassy hires a guy. Yeah, and there's, there's more, you know, there's certainly more cases that we don't know about. Just, just because there's records of 20 every summer doesn't mean, you know, a lot more Japanese people have this sense of disorientation. And there's not a lot of agreement on what might be causing it. The, it's not a, Paris syndrome, none of these city syndromes are recognized in, in DSM-5 or whatever the current oh, okay. psychiatric manual is. Um, if you were diagnosing according to the literature, you'd probably say it's, they have a brief psychotic, they have something called brief psychotic disorder, but it's been latent. And something about the stress and the sleep deprivation, I guess, sure. of travel brings it on. And I can see that. I mean, jet lag changes your head, right? Yeah. I, I have lots of experiences of kind of wandering, even as a kid, wandering around hotel rooms halfway around the world in the middle of the night, kind of just staring out at the city being like, what am I doing here? I don't feel like sleeping. What's happened to everything I thought I knew about my head? <laughs> well, and when you land at an airport, there's always that thing, and this happens anywhere you go, any big city, you land at the airport and you expect to step out of the terminal and into a gondola. 
Right. And in fact, there is, there is, by the way, a Venice version of this called Laguna syndrome. Is there? Yeah. So that's the expecting the gondola to meet you at the, at the plane side. And, and I think in Venice, at least the airport is close enough to the city that you get gondolas pretty fast. But if you land in New York or Paris or something like that, or London, you have to do all that terrible airport taxi cab, maybe 90 minutes on a train to even get to a train station. That doesn't look like some desolate part of the suburban London. Right. You have to get on a fake train in order to get on the real train. And then you have to check into a hotel and that's all the worst kind of drudgery of traveling. And you're just thinking like Eiffel Tower, Eiffel Tower, Eiffel Tower, please. And it's just, and then you realize, oh, we didn't, we didn't spring for a hotel right across from Notre Dame. We're staying out in the 217th arrondissement. <laughs> and it could be that everything is disappointing, you know? Yeah. The, like, uh, the food, the... Maybe nothing. Maybe no Eiffel Tower could be as good as the thing in your head, you know? I've, I've certainly had the experience. Like the Mona Lisa. You go to the Mona Lisa and you're like, it's a little thing painted on a rectangle of poplar wood. Yeah, it's really small. And, and the reflective surface of the glass kind of makes it so that you have to... Stand in a certain location to see through. Just because some idiot with an X-Acto knife ruined it for everybody, I'm oh, sure. Oh, boy. That's a whole other topic. Uh, and so, like, maybe nothing can ever... I, but I've been to a few places that did, you know? I went to the Great Wall of China once, and I was like, this is better, better than the picture, you know? Like, I have the opposite of Paris syndrome here. But uh, maybe it's just in our nature to be disappointed, you know, because we can build better castles in our heads. We all have a little bit of Paris syndrome in our hearts. And that concludes Paris syndrome. Entry 901.JS1002. Certificate number 507 in the omnibus. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, it was really our only way of communicating with one another. Sometimes my phone rings and it startles me. I'm yeah. like, why is this thing that I have in my pocket just to look at social media trying to annoy me now? What, who does it think it is? People say to me all the time, well, let's hop on the phone. And I'm like, let's hop on not. <laughs> you really showed them. I did. With that. I'm like, we were texting and it was fine. Why do you want to hear my voice, weirdo? But if social media persists, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Our address for email, which was a popular form of long-form writing, is omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Futurelings, we speak to you as a voice from the distant past. And as a result, you have all kinds of knowledge we don't. Namely, most importantly, chiefly for us, how long our civilization, which we built, even survives. You know the sad story of the tragedy that inevitably awaits us. We hope and pray that that kind of catastrophe does not come, but we feel confident that sooner or later it will. And if it comes soon, this very recording could be the last entry, our final word in this massive repository of knowledge. But should providence allow, should the calamity, the blood wave be forestalled for yet another week, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.